take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean, and this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Be sure to check us out online on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couple Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couple Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experiences working with thousands of couples for nearly 20 years. You know, everyone says you need to work on a relationship but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. Today, we welcome Kim Oliver. Welcome, Kim. She is a licensed clinical professional counselor, a nationally certified counselor, and a board-certified coach. She is a world-renowned expert in choice theory, a highly sought-after international speaker, and an award-winning author. Her books include Leveraging Diversity at Work with Sylvester Bao, Secrets of Happy Couples, Choosing Me Now, and A Choice Theory Guide to Relationships. Kim is the author of the Relationship Center blog, creator of Empowerment Parenting, a 25-hour parenting curriculum for court-mandated parents, and owner of Academy of Choice, a BCC coaching program. Welcome to our podcast, Kim. Thank you, Ray. It's good to be here. Yeah. So, you know, I know a little bit about choice theory, um, but for our listeners out there, maybe you can explain it a little bit for them so they can understand a little bit about, about what you do. Choice theory is a little hard to sum up in a, in a short little bit, but I like to talk about um, the, the two questions. So the first question is, whose behavior can you control? And everybody knows the answer to that. Everybody knows they can only control their own behavior. But the second question I like to ask is, whose behavior do you try to control all day long? And people will very sheepishly laugh and say everybody else's. And in relationships, it tends to be the thing that is a relationship killer, is trying to control your partner into being the person you hope they'd be instead of the person that they really are. So choice theory, it's not just for couples. It's really about figuring out a lot like the serenity prayer, right? Figuring out what you have control over, taking responsibility for that, and then accepting the things that you don't have control over and figuring out how am I going to respond to that given that that's the reality that I'm faced with, what do I need to do to make the most of this situation instead of trying to change the other person? I think that's a really powerful point there. What do you mean you can't control your partner? <laughs> I have your remote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, most often we get couples uh, on the couch and they're just pointing the finger at each other, right? If she would only change or if he would only change. And that's where they get into this stalemate. Right. And that's what you're talking about that's here, right. right? And so I imagine that taking personal responsibility is a really big part of what you coach people on. It really is. And so often we get into trouble when we expect other people to fix our life for us. It's like, it's not their job to make you happy. It's your job to make you happy. Um, And when in choice theory, we talk about 
five basic needs that everyone has. And the idea is when we're not happy, one, of, one or more of those needs are being frustrated or are not being met and to figure out what that is and then do what you need to do to get that satisfied. If your partner is willing to cooperate and do some things that will um, help you meet some of your needs, that's great. It's not like you can't ask for what you want, but if your partner is doing what they're doing to meet their own needs and that doesn't mean that they can just stop to, to take care of you, then it it's just so much better when you take responsibility for your own stuff instead of making another person's life miserable, making them responsible for doing what you need. Yeah, because then you're just powerless. Right. And your life goes nowhere. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like banging your head against a wall and thinking something that that the wall's going to give. It's your head that's going to give. It's not the wall. It's not something you have power and control over. And we blame other people when they, we think that it's their job to do what we want. If you loved me, you would do this for me. <laughs> it's, it's just so silly. I mean, my husband, for example, um, he, was, he was somebody that worked a lot. And he worked a lot because we had some debt, mostly my debt, from before I married him. And he's a survival guy. That's one of the needs. So for him, working so much was his way of saying, I love you and I'm trying to fix this debt problem. For me, the the person that's the the love and belonging person, I wanted time with him, and he was taking time from me to work to show me how much he loved me. It was very confusing to me as a as an early wife in a marriage. It was just you know now I look back and I recognize clearly what was going on, but it was hard, and I thought if he would just stop working so much, I could be happy, but he might stop working and be miserable because his needs weren't getting met. What he had to take care of, so. It's figuring out that people are doing the best they can to get what they need, and our job is to do the same without trying to frustrate the important people in our lives. It is really an interesting thing that we try to superimpose our stuff onto our partner instead of understanding who our partner is, and especially the when one person's a talker and the other one is not, and that person will just have the whole conversation all by themselves, and they have no idea why their partner won't speak to them. <laughs> It's true. When you ask the questions and answer at the same time, there's nothing left for your partner to say. <laughs> right. Yeah. How did you get into this kind of work? Oh, I like to say it was an accident, but I don't believe in those things. So I was working out of college. I only had a bachelor's degree in psychology at the time, and I got a job at a community mental health residential program for recently deinstitutionalized patients. It was during the time when we were taking schizophrenics that had lived in a mental hospital their whole adult life and putting them in the community. And I did that for about five years and ended up having a conflict with my boss. I'm not the easiest person to manage. And uh, I decided I needed a new job. And I got a job working for a foster care agency in Pennsylvania that offered to train their staff in reality therapy. I didn't know what reality therapy was at the time, and uh, I just thought it would be good to stay kind of academically involved since I wasn't ready to go back for my master's at that point. So I studied reality therapy, and it was right around the time I got into it that they had started teaching choice theory along with it. At that time, they called it control theory. And so I learned that through my uh, job, and I really liked it so much. They were willing to uh, pay for us to get certified, but we had to ask for that. So I got certified. And then the next step was to start to 
be on the teaching track. So I got on that track, started to do some teaching, realized that really was my love. And I worked there. I became the director of training and development. I worked at that foster care agency for 17 years. And then I started to see the application of choice theory in an, in everyday people's lives, not just at that time, the Institute was only uh, teaching teachers and counselors, psychologists, some nurses, you know, choice theory. And I thought everybody needs to know choice theory. It's just such a usable application for anybody that deals with people. So I started a business called Coaching for Excellence to um, start developing products for everyday people that apply choice theory. So that's how it started. And, and that was in 2000. Started my business in 2005. Yeah. Okay. Great. Awesome. What is what is your opinion about the impact of parenting and <laughs> the impact of that when those kids become adults and get into relationships? Oh, it's huge because it's our imprint for what relationships are supposed to be. So however the, the adult people in your life interacted with each other, that's what's normal for you. So you feel like maybe you want to recreate that in your relationship, or if it was really, really painful and horrible, you may be thinking, well, I want to do the opposite of what happened in my family. But in both situations, you're hostage to the, the blueprint of your parents' um, upbringing. So you need to break away from that. And if you, if you have the, the skills and the desire and the knowledge to do that and start really soul searching and asking yourself, is this what I really want? I remember talking to this man one time. I was teaching choice theory and it was at a residential, uh, basically a lockup facility for adolescent males in Pennsylvania. So it was pretty much, they'd say, the worst of the worst of these kids. Well, in choice theory, I don't believe in bad kids. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we really understand everybody's doing the best they can at that point in time to get what they want. So I'm thinking about these kids and I'm teaching them choice theory and they had a really warped version of choice theory. They thought, well, if you tell the kids, if they do A, you're going to do B, then when they do A, they're choosing their consequence. And I'm thinking that is not what choice theory is. <laughs> But this guy, we were talking a little bit about parenting, and he said, well, my dad, you know, whacked me around, and look at me, I turned out fine. I'm gonna, I do the same thing with my kids. And I, I was pretty new at teaching at that time, and I was a little panicky, thinking that this is what he thought was a good idea. And I remember asking him, um, what kind of relationship do you have with your dad now? And his response was, oh, I hate that SOB. <laughs> and I, I just asked him, you know, quietly, is, is that the kind of relationship you want to have with your son? And he didn't answer me at that time, but at the end of the training, he said, I plan to change how I parent my kids. And I was just blown away by that. And I thought, I really, even if he just changes a little bit, it's, it's going to break that paradigm that he was raised in. And I believe there's a lot of people who are hit as children. I was spanked as a kid. It didn't damage me. But I think that the important thing to remember is most kids are going to do what you want them to do if you just ask them. You don't have to punctuate it with a smack or a punch or some kind of physical um, incentive. People do what they do because they want to please you. They care about you. They respect you. They want to do the things that you want them to do. Not always, but many times. So I, I think that that has a lot to do with parenting and how we parent as well as the relationships that we have with our partners. We see a lot of um, 
overparenting, mm. where parents are making decisions for their kids, you know, eat before they're hungry. You know, they, they don't get their own internal uh, prompt from their own feelings. And the parents are put a coat on, have something to drink. And they're, you know, I'm not talking about two or three year olds. I'm talking about yeah. nine, 12 year olds. And so if kids are not learning how to make choices as as kids and age appropriately, that's going to have a huge impact on them as adults. It absolutely will. In fact, one of the key components of choice theory is something that Glasser called self-evaluation. And he says that we all know how to do that. We all know how to key into our internal signals. But when we've been in environments where they've suppressed that or they've told us, no, that's not right, you shouldn't feel that way, um, or they're overparented and they're told what they need before they even need it, then it makes it very difficult to tune into that inner voice and those inner signals. It's like I've done a lot of work in the areas of residential programs, either in drug and alcohol or adolescence, people that aren't exactly uh, raising their hand and saying, please help me, I need help, right? And I call them, some of them are institutionalized, right? They, they have been behavior modified for years. And so their main question is, you want me to do something? What are you going to give me? So they're looking for the reward. And the other thing that I find is they'll never tell you what means something to them because if they tell you what they like, then that's the first thing that's going to be taken away when they misbehave. So they, I don't believe that they lose their ability to self-evaluate, but I think that they hide it because they, they want the reward and they don't want to have the punishment. So they keep it to themselves. And I think that can happen with, with overparenting. You maybe learn that you should take care of your needs before they're actually a need and continue that process in, in adult life with your own children, not only just with yourself. It can be really problematic because parents are taking responsibility for their children's well-being instead of teaching their children how to take responsibility for their own. Parents aren't going to always be there. And I, I think the school systems as well, you know, I think the school system locks up the teachers and then the, there's the blame going back and forth between parents and teachers when it's really the kids that should be taking the responsibility. Absolutely. It's a great gig when you're a kid. You can get the adults arguing over what's best for you and you get to go do your own thing while they fight it out. Yeah. It, it, it does happen like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think parents get really afraid that their kids are going to make the wrong choices, right? And right. there is a lot of responsibility placed on kids these days, you know, a lot younger now. They have to know what they are going to do in their future at a very young age, what school they're going to go to, what, top, what you know, subject they're going to study. Well, they're getting academically over uh, programmed and then they're not learning social skills and how to create and how to play. I think that's really true. I think if we look at our standing in the world in terms of education, we'll find that what we're doing really isn't working. Over educating and and focusing on academics is not really the answer that's going to make us smarter. I think we need to... um, make mistakes. I I am a big fan of mistakes. I think mistakes are the biggest learning tool in the world. You as a parent can try to tell your child, don't touch that stove, it's hot. And if any kid is like I was as a kid, I don't believe my mother when she told me the stove (laughs) is hot, I had to touch the darn stove. But then I realized, oh, I learned two things. My mother told me the truth and that stove really is hot. 
And that's just a simple example. I mean, of course you're going to prevent your child from doing things that could kill them, right? I mean, you don't, you want your child to live. That's your number one goal. But I think the parents that are doing a lot of that taking responsibility for their kids, they see everything as something that could potentially kill their child. And so they're stepping in in times when children really need to learn. If I fall out of a tree that I just climbed, I might break my arm. And yes, that's going to hurt and it's going to be inconvenient. But it's a way of learning that I need to be more careful when I'm off the ground or something like that, right? We need to let our children make mistakes that aren't going to kill them, but make mistakes so that they learn the consequences of when I do this, this happens. And so often we don't allow that to take place. We're just telling them, if you do this, this is what happens. And the kids never really learn it. They'll do what you say because they might be afraid of your consequences. But when they get out from under your consequences, what do they know about navigating the world? Not enough. I always talk about like, you know, when your child started to walk, did they fall down? (laughs) And did you say, stay down? Because if you get up again, you're probably going to bump your head. You're going to fall down again. You know, exactly. and we forget that learning requires falling down many times. That's right. Mm-hmm. Those are the bumper parents. They bumper the world, yeah. right, to protect their kids from it, right? Or bulldozer parents, right? Uh, lawnmower parents. Lawnmower parents. Where they so. mow everything out of the way so the kid can't. It's almost like, you know, parents, they either don't give them the children any choices or they give them too many choices. Yeah. And then that's just too overwhelming. Would you say that? I would agree. I think three is a great number, like three choices. If mm-hmm. you don't give any choice, if you just say, do this, that's advice. That's a directive. You must do it. And we as humans, one of the five basic needs that we have is a need for freedom and a need for power. So if we're always being told what to do, those needs are being frustrated. Power and freedom are being frustrated. So you may see some misbehavior in your child in terms of trying to get more power or more freedom, particularly from you. Um, Sometimes kids will be very cooperative. And those are the kids whose biggest need is love and belonging. They want to please you. So they'll do whatever you ask them to do. That, That might sound like a good idea. If you're the parent, that's great. Oh, I just have to tell my kid and he'll do what I want. But what we don't realize is they don't just have the need to please you. They also have the need to please everyone in their life. So when they get involved with a kid who may not be the best influence and they want your child to do something, they're going to do it because they've been taught to be compliant. Or a boyfriend or girlfriend. Exactly Mm -hmm. that too. So my goal as a parent and when I work with parents is to try to help parents teach kids to tune into what they know to be right and wrong. Certainly parents have an influence over what kids develop their values into being what they think is right or wrong. And they have to know that, yes, they are going to make some dumb moves. Of course they are. They're kids. They're going to make mistakes. But I don't even like to use the word mistake. I like to think of a mistake. If you learn something from it, it wasn't a mistake. It was a learning opportunity. If you keep making the same mistake over and over and over, then those, I would say, are truly mistakes. (laughs) But I love that Thomas Edison quote. I may not say it exactly right, but I remember him saying, I didn't make 10,000 mistakes. I just found 10,000 things that didn't work. And I thought that's brilliant. And one that did. That's right. And if you, if you stopped, if you would have stopped at 9,999, we might not have electricity. We'd be sitting in the dark right now. That's right. (laughs) You keep referring to the five needs. Can you list those and talk more about that? Sure. 
So the need for survival is one of the basic needs. And many people think that's the most important because of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And in Glasser's world or in the world of choice theory, survival... And, and Glasser, William Glasser, he was the, the founder of choice theory? Correct. correct? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't specify sure. that earlier. Um, yeah. So it, Glasser's needs are more linear. They're not hierarchical. And Glasser wasn't talking about the path to self-actualization. He was talking about these are the needs that people need to meet on a regular basis to be satisfied or happy. Um, so survival includes safety and security. Those were Maslow's actual two first two levels of his hierarchy. But people who have a high need for survival, they like to be safe. They don't like to venture out of their comfort zone. They don't like change. They're savers, not spenders. So, you know, they, they don't usually buy on credit. If they, you know, if they want something, they'll save up until they have enough to get what they want. They worry about people that are not as safety conscious, you know, those kind of things. Um, the next need I like to talk about is love and belonging. I think of that as the need for connection. And we all have a need to be connected, just as we all have a need for safety. Um, but the need for connection is about relationships, people, could be pets, you know, um, even the relationship with yourself, but it's about connection, feeling like you belong somewhere. And even Grizzly Adams from back in the day, he was a, a, a hermit, lived all by himself in the woods, but he still had that bear. And mm -hmm. that bear was like the connection that he had. And we all need that. If you happen to be high in love and belonging, I happen to be that. You like people, your relationships go deep. You're not happy with that superficial conversation like, oh, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. No, no, I wanna know how you're really doing. Um, and so we don't like conflict, but if other people are in conflict, we wanna fix it. If it's our conflict, we may like to avoid it. So that's kind of the, the connection piece. Um, and you have to have the safety and security in order to have that love and connection piece or are those independent? I would, they're independent. Okay. Right. So I think about the commercials on TV sometimes for starving kids in Africa and they'll show these kids they're, they're perhaps a week away maybe from, from perishing, but they're still clinging to their mom. So they may have survival might be at risk, but they could have solid love and belonging connections. So it's not the same as Maslow's. They're mm -hmm. apples and oranges. I'm not saying Maslow was wrong. It's just that he was looking at different things than Glasser was looking sure. at. I think about, it's a, it's a really good question because there are a lot of people who would put their survival need at risk to meet another need. That's true. Yeah. People, pe firemen, military mm -hmm. folks, mm -hmm. um, drug abusers, uh, people who are suicidal, they would give up love and belong, or they give up survival to meet some other need, people who practice extreme sports. So you don't have to have survival to be able to meet the others. And also toxic relationships. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now people would say you have to be alive in order to meet your other needs. Certainly that's true. So in that regard, yes. But, but you're risking. Right. Yeah. But there's so much more to survival than just being able to stay alive. Um, the power need. Uh, I like to think of this as the need for significance because I think power has turned into a negative word. People think of power as control, um, you know, being, being a boss kind of person. But I think it's truly more about wanting to be significant, have an impact, make a difference. Even those bossy, controlling people, they want to have an impact. That's what's motivating this mm -hmm. behavior. So I think um, 
people who have a high power need, it can manifest in several different ways. We can have power over other people, which tends not to be very responsible power because you get your power need met, but they can't. So we like to think about power with others. Some of the, the leaders that you might be familiar with, like Mahatma Gandhi, for example, or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I, I believe that they had power with others. They weren't trying to power over others. And then the most important kind of power from my perspective is the power within that sense of efficacy, the things that we, we, are, we know are our gifts, talents, and abilities. And I think that the people who power over other people are people who haven't yet discovered the, their power within. The only way they have to get power is by powering over others. And we're almost born knowing how to do that. If you've ever watched two two-year-olds playing and one has a toy the other one wants, they don't know how to negotiate. They know how to take it or hurt the other child so they can get that toy. So we, we're born knowing how to do that, but we need to learn other ways to, to have power with others and then to develop our power within. Then we can give up powering over others because it doesn't feel as good anymore. Powering with and, and within feels so much better. Um, the need and, for, oh, I'm and that sorry. would be, you know, feeling empowered in that word of empowerment, right? Exactly. And, and it really kind of makes me think of like the Jungian, like sacred side and shadow side of power. It can be used in a very negative way and it can also be used in a very positive way for the person, right? That's true. And I think we could look at every one of these needs to have a, a positive side and kind of a, a shadow side mm -hmm. as well. Think about love and belonging. We have clingy people. We have promiscuity. We have kids who have a baby to escape situations. Mm -hmm. They think that's going to solve the problem. So a there's a lot of what, what Glasser would call responsible ways of getting your need met and less responsible ways mm -hmm. of getting your need met. And the responsibility piece is getting your need met without interfering with others meeting theirs. So that's the difference. Got it. And then the need for freedom, that happens to be another high one of mine. I'm a love and belonging freedom girl. So freedom people, we're the ones that like to ask why. We, we, stop, you know, we asked it when we were three and we never stopped. You know, why do we do it like that? It doesn't make any sense. We're the ones that are kind of outside of the box, looking at the status quo, saying, what, why are we doing that? There's so many better ways to do it. We don't like the sense of being controlled. We're always trying to broaden our boundaries and have bigger spaces and ways in which to operate. Um, I'm not a big fan of bureaucracy or rules, especially when they don't make sense. I'm always looking for the exception or how can, how can I get around that rule? You know, because it, it's that sense of being controlled that we fight against, freedom people do. Yeah, I would say this is resonating right now for both of us here, yeah. right? You're both high freedom. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I love couples who both have high freedom because you have, at least from outside looking in, I don't know you very well, but I think that two people who get together with high freedom can have a beautiful relationship because they're not trying to control the other person. They let the other person do their thing. You do your thing. I do my thing. And when we're together, we're together and it's awesome and amazing. And I know some couples like that and I'm, I'm a little jealous of, of that because I think it's a pretty awesome way to live. That well, would, if you just look around this us. room <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and this is, you know, we create all the time uh -huh. and it's, uh -huh. it's a blast. And that's another part of freedom too, is the creativity. Mm -hmm. You can't, I think you can't create very well unless you have that freedom yeah. to really let go and explore what's possible. And the last one, Glasser called it fun, the need for fun. 
I like to call it the need for joy because so many people, when they hear fun, they think of kids and they think of play. And I think that play is part of the joy need for sure. We, we may manifest joy through our play. We also manifest joy through relaxation and we manifest it through discovery learning as well. And Glasser allowed for that too. He said that fun is the genetic reward for learning. I think it's for me less fun and more joy. I love discovering new things. I'm having a blast trying to figure out how to do this podcasting <laughs> stuff. So, and, and it's really been, it's really been the ability to learn some new stuff and to have fun with it. So joy. Joy really requires discipline because your joy happens when you take one thing and you connect it with another thing. Yeah. And too often we're so busy uh, seeking comfort instead of discipline. So, you know, we distract ourselves or eat some pizza or whatever, and we never get to the joy because we get to pleasure, which is fleeting. Yes. And the joy requires that you stick with something and learn it so that you kind of level up. Yep, exactly. When, when you're working with um, clients, are there any trends that you're starting to see that kind of align with the different generations? That's an interesting question I haven't thought of before. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I see um, is couples who are not interested in that traditional marriage relationship. There's a lot of couples I've, I've known that are more ready to be parents than they are to be coupled, um, which is interesting to me because that's certainly not the generation I grew up in. In my generation, we, we got married. That's what we did. And then we had children. I know um, my mother will often say they, they're doing it all backwards when people have children first. But I think um, it makes a lot of sense to me because when marriage, I, I don't even know the history of the institution of marriage, but I think about biblical times and I think people got married when they were 13 and they might live till they're 30 or maybe 40. It's not so hard to be with one person for that period of time, but if you get married at 30 now and you live till 90, you got 60 years to be with somebody, the same person. And people change, you know? And if you're not growing together, then the other direction is you're growing apart or one person's growing and the other person's standing still. And so the person that you loved when you were 25 is not going to be the person you love when you're 55 if you're not working at staying together, growing together and, and doing the things that you guys talk about. I, I think that's definitely a trend that we're seeing too, especially in the millennial generation, that they are not getting married you know, they're, they're cohabitating mm-hmm. and they're having a, that kind of a relationship and they, consequently, they don't have a high rate of divorce as well. Right. And so they're kind of living these independent lives. They don't even merge their finances right? and they just kind of cohabitate. And they're the children of divorced parents. Yes, they are Correct. more than ever before. And, you know, I think the other thing that's a big impact is, you know, when I was a kid, you went out and played. Yes. And you figured out your friends and your what you were doing. And now everything's structured. All the parents are at the play dates. And then you have to go to, you know, it's just crazy. The gymnastics and the baseball and the and it's thousands of dollars in many hours of a family's week. Yeah. And there's no place for the creating and figuring it out. Right. The fact the um, you know, as children, like you say, we could do a lot with a ball and a stick, Mm -hmm. right? And now you have to have the video games and, you know, when you beat the levels and you're all done with the game, you need a new game. And, you know, it's, 
not a lot of physical activities. So you see some children who are overweight. It's, it's sad. And yet you also see, because I see on Facebook all over, I've become, I won't say, well, fairly recently aware of child sex trafficking. I mean, I always yeah. knew that it happened, mm -hmm. but I didn't know it happened here. And in, in America, it happens everywhere, in every town. And now I see it on Facebook all the time. This person is missing. This person is missing, you know, and they're children. And so parents have a reason to be afraid. You can't just, like, I grew up like you. You're, you got on your bike and you went around the neighborhood. And as long as you were home by dinner, everything was fine. And your parents knew who your friends were. So mm -hmm. they'd call one house. If you're not there, they'd call another house. And they'd always find you if they needed to. We didn't have cell phones, of course. Uh, so it's, it's very different now. Mm -hmm. And I know I have eight grandbabies. And they're of the age where they're doing gymnastics. They wrestle. You know, they take music lessons. So there's all these things that the parents are running around to. They spend a lot of time in the car. Yeah. And if you have more than one kid, you're often going in different directions. So you're not spending that kind of family time or couple time that you might want to spend. And the only time you get to have is after you put the kids to bed. And by then you're too exhausted to really enjoy yourself. And usually they turn on a screen. Right? I see <laughs> my son and his wife. I laugh because I'll go and I'll visit with them. And they have their couple time, their together time, and I'll be there. It might be different when I'm not there, but when I'm there, they're on opposite ends of the couch with their feet up on the couch. So they're touching legs, each on their own cell phone, doing different things. Yeah. My son checking his listings for the work that he does. My daughter-in-law playing Scrabble with her mother, you know, different things. But that's couple time. And it's different, but they feel connected. So I don't know. Uh, if I want to, if I want to necessarily judge that, I know that it's it's different than it was for me for sure. Mm -hmm. And when we're working with couples, and you know, we tell them that they need to increase their quality time, and we tell them no screens during that they time. Panic! Don't oh, they? They, they freak out. <laughs> what are we gonna do? What are we gonna talk about? Right? <laughs> so and, and usually they start talking about the kids, you know, and and that becomes the primary uh, connection mm -hmm. for their relationship. And the relationship itself just starts to wither and starts to degrade. Hmm. I think too, you know, when I was growing up, we had dinner as a family every night around the table and modern day families are so busy that those connection times aren't regular and they're not there. I think a lot of families are eating in their car mm -hmm. after going through a drive through yeah. somewhere. Yep. Yeah. It's sad. It is. Because then you lose connection with your children. You don't mm -hmm. know what's going on with them. And I always said with my kids, I, I wanted to know what was happening with them. So it was really important to me not to judge what they did, not to lecture them about what they did. And I remember one of my son's parents or his, his friend's parents said to me, well, when I was a kid, at least I had the decency to lie to my mother. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that way decency and lying in the same sentence. I didn't quite understand that. But I, yes, there were things that my children told me that sometimes I wished I didn't know. I wanted to cover my ears right. and go la, 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 la. But um, I never really regretted that they felt that they could come to me and talk to me about what was going on because they didn't talk to me. I knew that they, they were going to talk to their friends and I didn't want the information coming solely from their friends. Talk to me, hear my side, you decide what you're going to do, but at least check in with a, an adult that cares about you. I think privacy is a big thing too. Mm -hmm. You know, kids are on a screen since the moment they're born and they're watched and watched and watched and watched and there's no space for that 
that privacy where you shut your bedroom door and dance and be silly and right you know and I think that also contributes to that lack of connection and creativity Mm -hmm. yeah I I laugh it's social media right I think about MySpace that was like the first place and and you had your kids had a MySpace account so then you wanted to go see what your kids were doing so you create a MySpace account then the kids said oh man I got to get out of here my parents are here (laughs) they go over to Facebook and then we adults we said oh Facebook now so we go to Facebook the kids are like they went to Twitter they well then they went to um, Snapchat Snapchat and Instagram and we're doing that too and I keep saying to parents let your kids have a space where they can can do their own thing now screens are dangerous though i have to admit you Mm -hmm. you get involved with people you don't know who they are they may not be who they say they are you know you think it's a 16 year old girl and you're talking to a 45 year old man so you need to educate your children about the dangers of that and and have them come to you if they think something isn't quite right and have some rules around that but don't try to prevent them instead of preventing them or monitor them right there's these these parenting apps now that if you get a notification if your 16 year old is driving over the speed limit right <laughs> right and so they're constantly being monitored wherever they go yeah. I, I i can't imagine growing up like that right oh i would be in a lot of trouble <laughs> <laughs> me too you know it's it's kind of funny you were saying that because we met online mm-hmm. and i invited you over to our home like is that a scary thing I think it is a yeah. scary thing. In today's day and age, absolutely, right? right? Yeah. Absolutely. I remember I did a little online dating um, and people wanted to rush right into, can we meet for coffee? And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I know nothing about you. We need to talk. I want to have a sense of who you are before I say, yes, I'll meet you because I don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny now, though, we have an app where we're calling up a stranger in a car and we're getting in their car. <laughs> Uber and Lyft, right? <laughs> That's right. But you know, you saw probably recently the the report that came out about all the assaults that happened towards Uber drivers and right. perpetrated by Uber drivers. It's pretty scary. Yeah. And I ride in Uber all the time. I'm going to be a little more cautious in the future, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, when you are meeting with a couple, you know, here, here's an example I wanted to kind of bring up is um, we're seeing a lot of couples coming in that are divorced or divorcing, and they want to focus on co-parenting, yeah. right? And and strengthen that relationship. And some are more conflictual than others, um, but this is a, a very... Uh, you know, popular trend that's happening now. I think the blended family is the leading family structure in the United States currently. And so this is a huge challenge. And how does choice theory apply to that kind of a relationship and working on that? That's a great question. I think I would talk about an application of choice theory that we call lead management. It's not a great name, but you know, if you Google lead management, you find out a bunch of sales lead systems for salespeople. (laughs) But Lead management is the choice theory application to groups or to supervision or management kinds of things. And I think that we're managing a family. And when you have, uh, let me start with before it's a blended family, right? You have two people parenting and you have different parenting styles. And the parenting style that you adopt has a lot to do with what your high need strengths are, right? So I'm a love and belonging and freedom girl. So I tend to be more of a laissez-faire parent than I do one of those controlling dictator type parents. But if you're high survival or high power, you would tend to be more along the lines of a dictator parent. My husband and I had this difference. He was a power and survival guy. I'm a freedom and 
love and belonging girl. So between the two of us, with our need strengths, we were on opposite ends of the parenting mm-hmm. extremes. Now, I don't think we were this, you know, really widely apart. I think we were closer to the middle. But what happens when you're close to the middle but on opposite sides, he'll look at something I do and think, well, that's way too permissive. I got to get stricter. And then I'd see how strict he was being, and I'd think, wow, I got to loosen up. And so you tend to grow apart in your parenting instead of together. And that is where you really end up with a, with a mess. So then add in, you're now a step-parent. So these aren't your children, and you first have to have a conversation with your partner about how involved they want you to be in their parenting. Because you could have, a, you could have children in the home that have four parents, because they have the two of you, and then they have their other, you know, their original parents that are in another household. And then if you add in their new spouses, you end up with a lot, I don't even know, I can't even do the math. <laughs> right. um, so it gets, it gets really crazy. So you don't want to have a kid in the house saying, well, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my father. You're not my mother. And that happens a lot in mm-hmm. blended families. So I think that having a conversation to get on the same page, to talk a lot, a lot and often about what parenting means to you, what you think is the right thing to do in certain circumstances. I think having a conversation before talking to the kids is crucial. I think, you you know, if your child brings up something and wants an answer from you, I think the answer should always be, I need to talk to ABC and however many parents there are, you have regular conversations about what's happening with that child. So you don't want, what I think is really critical is you don't want something to be okay in one house and not okay in the other, even though kids can easily figure that out. They know which parent to go to for whatever it is that they want. It's not a good way to do co-parenting. You want to, as much as you can, be on the same page and know what each person is doing. If one parent says no screen time and the other parent thinks, oh, I'm going to buy you a new screen. You can keep it over here. Don't tell your other parent that you have it. It'll be our little secret. That's terrible parenting. Yeah. And I, I just think the communication is key and working out, negotiating the differences. So if you want to be super strict and you got somebody else who wants to be super permissive, you have to talk about what does that middle ground look like and work towards getting there so that you can agree and you're not just fighting with each other. Yeah, couples think that, you know, just because they're divorced, now they don't have to deal with the other parent. But that it is... You know, if they couldn't have communication before when they were married, it, it they're not going to just have it automatically after a divorce. Yeah, we see a lot of family situations where the most powerful person in the home is the it's child. The kid, of yeah, of course. Right. And it's so damaging to them and scary. Yes, because they don't know where the boundaries are. Right. They need that. And so I think for me, you're right. They never communicated when they were together, and now we expect them to communicate with the, uh, around their children, but I think it comes from prioritizing. Mm-hmm. Raising those children is the most important thing. That's your lifetime commitment. You can quit each other, but you don't want to quit those kids. So, you know, step up and suck it up and have the conversations and do the work for the good of your child. Absolutely. And t- to always remember, that's what you agree on. We want our children to become strong, responsible, loving um, adults who live within their value system. And if that's the goal, then you want to always focus on that and find a way to work together to make that happen. And if you disagree, it's okay to disagree, but try to come together to form some solution that can suit both of you or all of you, however many there are. Right. And, And we want our kids to become better than us. 
Absolutely. Right? And so a lot of times when we tell the parents, you know, focus on your, your kids in the future and their relationships, what kind of relationship do you want them to have with their partner? What kind of person do you, do you want them to be in this world? And, and it kind of helps refocus them on what is truly important. And that's what's in the best interest of their, of their children. Right. I like to use that expression. Sometimes parents have to give up what they want right now, which Mm -hmm. is compliance and obedience with what they really want, which is that future focus. You want your kid to do what I say right now when I say so, but will that child be able to think for themselves when they're 25 and they have their own kids? So give up what you want right now for what you really want. And the other thing I think that parents really need to be careful about is using their children to meet Mm. their adult needs. Mm Mm-hmm right, of companionship and oversharing and elevating the kid to be their buddy. Right. Yeah. I've seen that too. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen parents use their children as weapons. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and that's, that's really unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, And turning the other parent into a villain. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Well, it, you know what's so hard about that? I'm sure you know this too. I'm not telling you anything mm-hmm. you don't already know, but I think that when you criticize the other parent, that child knows... I'm part of that person. Right. You're criticizing my dad. You might as well be saying that about me. Or if you're criticizing my mom, you might be saying that about me. And you don't even realize you're not just attacking your other, your ex-partner. You're really attacking your child too. And I don't think anybody means to be doing that. Yeah. Well, we tell all the couples that divorce really isn't what damages children. It's the conflict between yeah. the parents that, that does that. Kim, how can someone get a hold of you? Oh, they can uh, reach out to me at Kim at the relationship center dot biz. B-I-Z. Awesome. Sounds like you're doing some great work over there. Thank you. Well, Kim, we want to thank you so much for being on Couple Synergy. This has been quite a pleasure and very educational for us as well. It was Thanks. nice getting to it's know you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. For all you listening out there, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. Until next time, synergize your life, synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.